Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 29. If you can identify what skills your job needs and you can interview for those skills and score them on how well they demonstrate those skills, then you've increased your odds. The problem most of us have is how do I turn a job description into a skills based job description as opposed to an education experience job description? Welcome to a real-world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is BiggerPockets Business. How's it going, everybody? I am Jay Scott. I am your co-host for the BiggerPockets Business Podcast, and I am here this week, like I am every week, with my wonderful, amazing, gorgeous, and brilliant wife, Carol Scott. How you doing today, Carol? Oh, baby, you're always so sweet to me. Thank you so much. I'm doing really, really well. We are so close to hiring somebody. I have been interviewing so many amazing people for our new position with incredible skills, wonderful experience, and I'm just really excited to like grow our business this much more with a new hire. So it's very exciting stuff. Yeah, it's always fun hiring. Stressful, but always fun. Speaking of fun, we have a really fun show this week. We've got serial entrepreneur Andy Seth with us. Andy is a business starter. He started, I think, nine businesses. He is an author, and he's actually just released his first album. And on this episode, we talk about everything from being a serial entrepreneur to doing social good through your companies, to a whole lot of talk about 90s hip-hop and rap. Probably a little too much 90s hip-hop and rap, but it was a fun conversation. Uh, Andy goes into a discussion on meditation, mindfulness, how we can overcome our ego to improve our entrepreneurial success. It's just a great, great discussion. So let's jump into our discussion with Andy Seth. And let's welcome Andy Seth to the show. How you doing today, Andy? I'm doing great, Jay. How you doing, man? I am doing well. We are so looking forward to chatting with you. You have so many awesome facets to your story, and we're going to dig into so many of them. And I just know this is going to be a great episode. 
Yeah. Thank you, Carol. Let's start with, I, I want to see how your your upbringing, your childhood kind of influenced everything you're doing today. So can you take us back a little bit and talk a little bit about um, like where it all started, what your childhood was like and how it kind of got you into the whole entrepreneurial spirit? Yeah, for sure, man. So I, I grew up in LA in a motel and I'm Indian. So if you're hearing this on audio only, you won't necessarily know, but I'm Indian. And so when you hear Indian and motel, you usually think like, oh, you must have owned it. But nah, I didn't own it. We didn't own it. We just lived in it. Um, and we used to pay weekly. So whenever you pay weekly, that tells you kind of like the kind of place you're living in. Like rent was due on the week, not on the month. So we lived in, it was my mom, dad, sister, and I, family of four, uh, motel. And in exchange for, you know, collecting rent, my mom did like the cleaning, uh, the bathrooms. There were, there were communal bathrooms. It wasn't like every room had their own bathroom, communal bathrooms. And then laundry, oddly. In exchange for doing that, we got a roof over our heads plus a $300 a month stipend. The whole idea was that we would be there for a couple of years when I was maybe born. And then my family could kind of pick themselves up and move on. We never really moved on for very long. I mean, we were there for 14 years until it was torn down. And it was it was torn down because it was a slum. So living in that environment, you know, one, I'm, I'm the kid of, an, of Indian immigrants. So there's certain kinds of expectations educationally, for sure. Both of my parents actually have master's degrees. They came to the States and they really don't transfer. It's something a lot of people understand. And a, lot, a reason why a lot of immigrants actually are business people is because it was out of necessity. You know, like you see the motel owners and the liquor store owners and the dry cleaners and all that because they couldn't actually just get jobs. And my parents were not that different in that regard. Uh, but they always pushed, you know, like, hey, go, go get good grades. Or it sounded more like, go get good grades, right? But like, <laughs> whatever it was, like, that's what it was. And so, uh, and, but growing up there too, like, I always, I always like wanted some stuff, not like a lot, but some stuff. And I didn't really know what an entrepreneur was. I couldn't, I honestly couldn't admit to you, like I even understood what business was. What I did see was like, yo, this is a way I could go make some dollars, right? Like this is a way I could go do something, make a few bucks. I knew that like, if I did something illegal, like really illegal, it would really make my parents upset and disappointed in me. And that was like a no, no. I already knew I wasn't going to slang drugs. I knew I wasn't going to go down that route. I saw my parents being pretty crafty. You know, I remember, for example, the the first time we got a phone that wasn't a rotary, it was a, a Panasonic answering machine with a little tape. You guys remember those things? I totally, do. Yes. Yeah, right? I hate to admit it, but I do. Yeah. But, so, so I had this, we had, I came home into the, in, you know, to our room and, and we had one of these phones and I was like, that's a big deal. Like then at least. And I was like, how do we get that? And, and my dad wouldn't tell me, but my mom explained to me, she, my dad had gone into the dumpster, the, the motel, we had a big, you know, one of those big blue kind of dumpsters. He had gone to the dumpster, found that phone, cleaned it off and it was working. I don't know. So like we ended up with that and like, that's a terrible story. I, I'm in the sense that like, it's embarrassing. At the same time, I know the values that it taught me and it's embarrassing more than for my own parents, you know, than for me, like as a kid, I remember being embarrassed by it. But then I also remember being like, well, yeah, well, like, but what else is in the trash? And that's really what fueled kind of like my first business. The first, well, not the one that I paid taxes on, but the first illegal business was dumpster diving for stickers. And so I would, there was a factory that was pretty close to our room and the factory made stickers and they made other kinds. It was basically probably a, a commercial printing place. Um, and I dove, took a dive into the dumpster just to see what they had. They had a ton of stickers that they were running stuff like skate stuff, you know, like, a. T and C, Varnay, you know, those kinds of brands. 
and they had some rejects. They had a ton of rejects. So I would just cut out the rejects, cut the ones that were good, and I go slang them for 25 cents each, five for a dollar. Um, and this was like my first business, if you will. But really what I was doing was like, I was down to get in the dumpster, pick up some stickers, go sell them at school. And remember everybody had like the brown book covers and you had oh, your trapper totally, keepers. Yes. Absolutely, yes. Right? Yeah, you had the trapper keepers. Like, yo, it was hot to have cool stickers on them. So like on your locker, inside the locker, you know, when you would pass the notes and fold them up and all that origami shape and stuff, like stickers were like banging. The stickers were like all over the place. So I had like a nice little business and that, but that's what bought me my first bike. And like, so that's what it, you know, what it, what they taught me was sometimes a little bit through like, yes, educationally, they didn't really have like entrepreneurial hustle, if you will, but they, you know, they, we, we made ends meet and I could see that. And I was like, okay, well, how can I do something with it? And like the first, that's my first one is dumpster diving. My first like legit business, like federal ID number business, I'm paying taxes. I got capital equipment, like business was as a DJ. I started that in the summer between eighth grade and high school. Basically I have shit to do. I'm sorry. Like, but you know, I have anything to do during the week. And, uh, I was like, well, what am I gonna do? I got to go off to this school. I'm going off to this high school in Indiana. I'm in LA. I want to do something for the summer. So what? And a, a record store opened up, uh, in my neighborhood called funky town records. That name is important to remember for a second. So remember that funky town because it parlays into the business after funky town records opens up. I'm like, what? There's records everywhere. Like this place is dope. It's like all hip hop. I ended up like learning from the guy who worked at the record store. He happened to be a pretty big time DJ in LA. And so like, I started learning from him going under, like going, basically I carried his crates and I carried his gear in exchange for, he let me drop a set here and there, but he would teach me stuff at these house parties. I started then getting really into it. As I went away to my high school, I bought some decks. I had my own records by then. I had saved up some money so then I would spin and practice there. The hustle at, at my school was in, the, in Indiana at the time, there was no music. You're like, LA already had music that was fresh, right? Even today, like you, the, the new stuff drops in big markets. It was definitely not dropping in Indiana. The, the whole school was music starved. And I had access to music that I would bring from LA. And so what I would do is bring that, the records over and I would sell like a mixtape, basically... I'd ask for five bucks. I'd write you a receipt that I learned from the hotel, by the way, right? Like in the motel, we would write receipts and here's your carbon copy. Take that carbon copy. I give them that. That's their, that's their copy. And I take this five bucks, collect a bunch of $5. And there was a studio in town. I would go bring my decks, bring the crates. And I would drop one set, one recording studio, no takes one set. I take an hour record on the tapes and print a, a bunch of the tapes and then hand the tapes to the people who gave me five bucks. And they give me the other five. That was my profit. And this is how I funneled money into buying more records. I could get into record pools. We used to do shopping trips to Chicago. Chicago was like the nearest place. Well, while everyone was going to buy like whatever clothes and stuff, like in the mall, I was going to record stores and I was diving into the crates there. Chicago was huge in house music at the time. And so I started getting really like really cutting edge, like even stuff LA wasn't getting because I was in Chicago getting Chicago house. And so then I started making tapes on Chicago house. I got my first DJing gig, a steady gig at a Marriott hotel in Chicago in the Chicago Marriott. So that was where I could like have the, the, a gig and perform and be able to like actually practice this. I started spinning at the school dances where they would bring outside performers. I was now getting to be like the outside performer, quote unquote. And so that just kind of built my DJ career until I went to school in Boston. By the time I landed in Boston, 
I was DJing six nights a week, headlining like at clubs like Joy, Boston, Roxy, Cat Club, M80s, Avalon, like some of the hottest spots there. So what was your plan for going to college at this point? So you've already figured out how to make money on your own. It sounds like you had that entrepreneurial spirit, but you decided to go to college. You got a scholarship. What were you studying? What was the plan at that point for after college? <laughs> oh, man. It sounds like I had all these plans, man. I didn't, I didn't know. Honestly, um, I didn't have a lot of models to look after, you know, to look up to and say, oh, so-and-so did this. Um, I went to college. Uh, I double majored in economics and Spanish. My plan was like, I don't know. I'll figure something out. Like, I don't really know. I, I liked econ. It was cool. It taught you about how the economy works, but I didn't know, man. I went in knowing like, I love spinning. I can promote like crazy. One of the things that I did really well was remember AOL chat rooms? I'm like dating myself all over the place. On this <laughs> oh, thing. we're right there with you. Don't even okay, worry you about remember it. AOL chat oh, rooms, very, right? very well. <laughs> yeah. So like, I remember when we and my friends discovered AOL chat rooms, they were like trying to pick up girls. And I was like, oh wait, I could pick up like 75 girls and bring them to the club, which turns into like 150 dudes who will pay to come into the club. So one of my strategies of, I started promoting the nightclubs that I was spinning at so I could get a cut of the door, right? And how would I fill my guest list? I went to Boston College. Boston College is not exactly like nightclub population. They're like bar people, right? Abercrombie bar people. I was spinning like, you know, nightclubs with like international students. Um, so I was pulling them from chat rooms, man. I was gangster on chat rooms and AOL chat like that. I mean, thank you AOL for inventing yourself because <laughs> I don't know how to pull so many people across Boston. So, so but, g- give me an idea of how much money you were pulling in, like doing the DJ gig six nights a week. Yeah. So my, my nightly rate, which was usually from 9 PM to 2 AM was a thousand a night, real easy, nice and clean. It was a thousand a night. And then, yeah, I did like tear down and stuff like that. So I usually got home around three o'clock in the morning. So you're, um, you're like, making $250,000, $300,000 a year doing this. Yeah. In I mean, college, it was, during yeah, college. It was, proper. it was proper. That's what, and then, and then promoting, I would typically get, it depends on the, on the cut, but it was either if they had a door, I would either get a cut of the door or I get a cut of the bar. There was very few places that would let me have a bar cut, but there were a couple of places that let me have a bar cut. Um, Cause they were like not willing to take the risk on the door. Anyhow, so that would add a little bit extra change for sure to to the thing. But um, it also like it was circular. Like if I could drive people to the clubs, my the demand for me spinning went up because totally. when I walked in, right, I brought my own audience. Now we understand this from a business standpoint, but back then I didn't. I wasn't thinking like bring my audience with me, and I was just like, yo, how do I get people to come hear me? Because like if they can come hear me, like then the club is packed, everybody's making money, cool, and I got an audience to play to. I don't want to play to a dead house. Right. That's how like, I love that. And this, and this is all like the extent of what year was this, by the way, what years were you in college? 1996. Oh, oh, that's okay. That's way after us. So don't even, don't even worry about it. But that's what's, that's what's so fascinating to me. Again, you're doing this all in an AOL chat room when like online marketing, when promoting wasn't exactly tech whatsoever. Typically I remember, you know, back in those days, you got like people just hand you flyers and, and flyers. for it, right? Flyers so, was right. Right. Yeah. That was it. So did you go even more of a business? I mean, what, it sounds like you just had like this, this, this knack for seeing that tech was the way to start promoting. So, yeah. so did that, did that steer you in, in it, any way? It did. Yeah. So what basically happened was websites started to become like a thing, right? And we had in the nightclub business, we had a lot of photography. We had me working in chat rooms 
Um, but we didn't have websites at these nightclubs. So, uh, in parallel, my work study job that paid me $6 and 50 cents an hour that I was required or five fifty actually five fifty an hour. I was required to have as part of my scholarship. I was making websites for Boston college. And no so kidding. I had taught myself the skill overnight, like over the weekend and yada, yada. But like, I went back to the club owners. And I was like, Hey, we should have websites. And they, I basically had to like teach them what's a website. Why would we have it? And my value prop then was see all these chat rooms I'm pulling. We could put a chat room on your website and we'll bring all the club goers to the website and they'll just talk about how dope the club is and how good the night is. Like we'll just put all those chat people on your website. That was the original value prop. I didn't really, I didn't have any other clue about like what this would become. So that started my first, my, my first web design company or my first company in college, which was funky web. So remember funky oh, town, funky town becomes yeah. funky web eventually. Yeah. So That's I started funky really web. Cool. And, and I, I was basically building websites for nightclubs. Well, by the time I graduated college, I did sell the web design company and by sell, I mean, I told some guys, here's my client list. And I shook their hand for stock. Okay. Um, that turned out to be terrible. <laughs> um, I didn't know what selling a business honestly meant. I read headlines and people were like, they sold their companies, right? That was the dot-com boom. Sure. And so I sold it for stock. Anyways, I, it never turned out to make me a dime. I didn't know anything about selling. Second time I started an e-commerce business with another partner. It was called golfstore.com and golf store. We did sell and we sold to a private equity. We had lawyers and we sold that in 2000. And so it was prior to the dot-com bust that one we did for some cash and equity. And as the history will play itself out. Uh, we never went public as the whole intent was. Um, and we clawed back everything. And now there's, there is no golf store. The domain is parked. So that, that also, by the time I graduated college, I think I had like quote unquote made millions and lost. <laughs> Before you were out of college. By the time I was out of college. So that when you, when you think about what happened after college, honestly, I was planning on starting another, you know, what then was a tech company, an online company. And the dot, dot com bust was going on. Uh, somebody had met through the venture capital world and mind you, I'm 21, but I had met somebody through the process of selling this company. He ran a, a VC firm and he's like, you know, you should really get into consulting. And I was like, hmm. well, what's that? And he's like, well, consulting is this, that you can see a lot of companies and you can help a lot of them, but you'll get an exposure and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, all right, well, what's like the best one? And he's like, Anderson consulting. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, Let's go. how do I get a job there? Or what do I do? And he's like, well, they have recruiting cycles. Go find out. I go back to my friends from school and they're like, yo, remember all those job fairs we would go to? That's what we were doing. And I was like, that was a job fair? I was like, what? I didn't know that was like a thing. So I just like old schooled it, man. I, I went to Anderson Consulting in El Segundo in LA, had an office. I just stood in the parking lot and asked people like, hey, who's the recruiter? Eventually this guy, Chris, was like pointing to me. That's Chris. He's the recruiter. I was like, cool, man. Like, hey, I want to come work for you guys. Here's my resume. I've done all kinds of stuff on the internet, da, da, da like hit me up. And he was like, okay. <laughs> Asked our recruiting cycle. And I was like, all right, cool. We'll like figure it out then. I don't know. Like, what, what's the problem? Let's make this happen. Uh, like, uh, I'm the right guy. For that the sounds t- like something you need to solve. Not me. <laughs> not my issue. Not my issue. I'm telling you, you, you can have access to me, bro. <laughs> that, that's what you get. Right? That, that's what I have to offer. So you did and end up working for them or what happened? Like what happened? Of course. For nine glorious months. Really? <laughs> <laughs> Man, that was terrible. It was a huge company. It turned into Accenture. It was a massive company. What was my little ass doing in Accenture? <laughs> like QA and like setting up conference rooms and 
anyway, so from there, one of the benefits was there were a lot of companies pitching Anderson or Accenture as it turned into on uh, funding them, internet companies. This group of folks came in. They were all guys. They came in. I had to set up the conference room and like make sure I reviewed their deck so the partners could see. I mean, it was just monkey work. Anyway, so I, I do this. The pitch was dope. I walk out of the room at the, down the hallway and I tag one of the guys. I was like, yo, like, are you guys hiring? And they're like, well, no, we're just partners. Like we just all left the big five consulting. And I was like, I'll leave. And they're like, well, like, let's talk about it. I mean, two weeks later it was done. I, would, I joined them. And that turned into what is, what became, I think we had multiple names, but became Procurian. We ultimately sold that to Accenture. I exited just about a year before that, but we built that company up. Uh, I built out the West Coast operations as well as India taking us overseas to begin with. And uh, that was a supply chain management procurement outsourcing company. And no so kidding. I scaled that for many years and met my wife while in India. So a lot of good things came about that, but that was really then the next business, but as a, as a group of partners, right? So it's, it's entrepreneurial, but not like on my own. So, so basically you just told me a whole lot in the last 30 seconds. So, <laughs> so we spent, I think, a good 10 minutes talking about you DJing in high mm-hmm. school and college and working at the clubs and making a thousand bucks a night, which is awesome. And then you kind of just skim over that big business that you started, you sell like in the supply chain field. So yeah. it, it's clear where your passions lie. Like for you, <laughs> like you're the record producer type, like, yeah, uh-huh. author Anderson might be good money, starting a supply chain company and Selling, selling it to, it. Accenture, oh, selling yeah, it to Accenture, yeah, but that, that's just kind of like we can skim over that part because that's less interesting. So it, it <laughs> Way says, to call me. Why they call me out, Jay? No, it's awesome because it says <laughs> a lot about your personality. And there's so many of us, and and I say us because I'm in this. That it's kind of like, yeah, we 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 go where kind of society tells us to go. Yeah. If you're in the tech world, you start a big company, you sell it to Accenture, like that's your legacy. That's what you talk about, but you're not about that. You're about doing what you enjoy, what you find fun, what like really gives you energy. And I, I admire that. That's awesome. Uh, thanks. Yeah. I, I, I probably should give it more credence, but you know, the, the truth was like, it was good work and all that. But, um, I mean, I don't know, man. Like, that's it, bro. Like, that's going to be life. That's it. You know? I mean, I feel like that a little bit about the wealth management world, to be honest with you. You know, I built that company after this one. I don't want to, like, skim too fast. But, you know, after I got out of uh, uh, what was Procurian, in parallel, like, that last year and a half, I was building a wealth management company um, until I finally clicked over and left. Like, I built that wealth management company with zero dollars. Like, I didn't come from a brokerage or a fidelity or... I even have family money to bring to the table, which is pretty typical in that world. I built that to a hundred million in assets. And then even that one, I feel like, all right, like, like it was cool, but, but it was just money, man. Like that's, that's what I, that's where I felt like so much of what I really think is important is past the money game. And I know the money is what attracts people to hear the story to begin with. I'm telling you right now, if my stuff wasn't together inside, like this would have been a rough journey. I think, then there was certainly difficulties. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, I've been very blessed. It hasn't been as rough as most people would probably pronounce and say like they've had. Mine hasn't been that rough. But I think that has a lot to do with like the inner work that's happened along the way, which we haven't yet touched on. But I feel like that's, that's actually the lesson I think is most important because that benefits you whether or not your business does scale or doesn't scale. Like 
So you got to ask, what do I feel called to do? And as you dial that up and you start to make decisions that way and you see how well have they turned out for you, you'll start to find that you're, you're willing to pump the volume a little bit more and you got to turn the volume on the other side. That's great. And it sounds like the first step to doing that is to actually ask yourself the question, what am I called to do? What am I meant to do? Why am I here? And there yeah. probably, I, I, there's so many of us and I, I fall into this trap as well, where we don't think about that. We think, well, obviously our, our calling is to make money and to help people and to do this or do that. But if we really thought about it, a lot of times it's not that simple. And, no, and for sure. Yeah. So that's, that's awesome. So what is your calling? What, what are you called to do and, and how have you done that or started to do that in your life? Well, I'll tell you my, my highest purpose in life is what, what we would call self-realization, self-realization, self-actualization. And I, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not foo-foo, man. I, I like, so I'm, when I say these words, they mean something. Self-realization means that you realize the potential of your life, right? The full potential. I'm not saying the material potential, I'm saying the full potential of your life. And that full potential is internal. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for example, this is level five, right? Once you've got the security and the safety and the love and respect and the status, what's next? Level five is self-realization. For a lot of people that can come to the, come out as like a, a life devoted to God, for other people that can feel like, like they're at one with the universe, that's kind of more my flavor, you know, like what's that oneness? People can experience this in meditation, uh, expert meditation. Like I meditate up to an hour and a half a day. So I can experience this at times through meditation. Sometimes I've experienced it through like dabbling in shrooms. Um, sometimes people experience it through like ayahuasca or LSD or like lucid dreaming. But there's ways people kind of feel this oneness and that their, their inner potential is realized, which effectively comes to like, you've moved beyond the ego. Your awareness goes beyond an ego. How I translate that into then what I do practically. So my focus has been largely on low-income youth, kids like me, basically, and providing them with educational and career opportunities. And so I've done it in two ways. Think of it like a portfolio. On the educational front, I run a nonprofit called Minds Matter. Minds Matter is a mentoring organization that gets low-income kids into college. And in the 15 years we've been here, we've had 100% of our graduates go to college on rides. I struck the first deal of its kind in the nation with the CU Denver, Colorado University of Denver, who guarantees admissions and rides to every one of our graduates throughout the state of Colorado. The School of Minds just did this now. CSU just did this now. Like, we're creating a whole movement of kids who can go through my program and get to college with rides. So we're equalizing the playing field for them. They got to work and they do work, but we're taking out the barriers that are in front of them. That's and so awesome. that's how I help them on the education side. Love so that. cool. How are you identifying? I'm just, I have so many questions. So many questions come from that. So, <laughs> so, okay. A few of them. And I just want more over. I just want to dig deeper into this. Cause I think this is so massively impactful. So mm. you had this idea. How did you start identifying the youths? How did you go after the, the university to offer up this program? Like what was your whole strategy to, again, it wasn't starting necessarily a business. Mm -hmm. It was starting a social awareness or social equalization mm -hmm. business. It was another starting your business. How did you go about all those steps, putting all those things together so that it could impact so many people so beautifully? 
Yeah, this is actually a great lesson in the, some of the stuff I'm teaching. And I've never reflected on this particular subject. So I'm glad you asked it this way. I, I didn't start Minds Matter. I joined it in its infancy. It was about two years old. Um, I specifically looked for a nonprofit who had a mission that I felt you know, aligned with my soul, um, but it didn't have the scale yet. I just didn't want to do startup startup. Like startups, as you know, like there's a large flywheel you have to get moving. And so I wanted to see something that already had somewhat of a flywheel. Plus they had like the curriculum and the concepts all built out. What I wanted to do was help provide scale. So that was like the entry point. That's where I look for in nonprofits. Now Minds Matters actually, you know, we're scaling statewide. It's a great mission, but it's a different phase of scale. It'd be like going from venture capital to private equity level of scale. And so for me, it was looking at the scale point and could I bring that to the table. On the deal side of it, this is really interesting. The deal happened because I made a Facebook Live post. And I talked for the first time about the vision that I had for scaling Minds Matter across the state. And it was funny because as soon as I put the, the live down, I, I, was, I was like in a parking lot before a meeting. My wife called me. And she called me and was like, you need to take that down. And like, she never talks like this. She never, but when she calls and says something like, Hey, you take that down. I listen. And she looks out for me. Right. Cause if my ego is in the way, like she'll be very, she's very good at, at pointing it out to me. She thought I was talking about it because of an ego. And I told her like, my, my intention isn't to say, look how great of a job I'm doing. My intention is so that people understand where we're headed. And I think people are going to want to join the cause. Intent, very different. The words sounded kind of the same. This was an important point because which one was I operating from, ego or soul? I knew I was coming from soul. She thought I was coming from ego. The words sounded the same. What happened? In the Facebook Live comments, the chancellor from, the C, from CU Denver, some chancellor had watched it and she said, email me or call me. She wrote, call me. And I was like, uh-uh. I didn't mention their name, nothing, because I didn't have anything to do with them. I call her and she's like, I saw your live. We have the same vision of getting low-income kids into our school and we're not getting enough of your kids. What can we do to make that happen? One month later, we had the deal inked. Really? So that all worked out how it was supposed to, like the intentions were in the right place and it, it manifested itself into something real. Yep. You know how long it took for deal number two to come in? Tell me. Which got delegated? Two years. Wow. Why? No kidding. What's the difference? You did it for the wrong reasons. That's right. After I had done one, I delegated and said, Hey, this is possible. Can you guys go after more team? And they did, but the intention was now to get the deal. Yep. And it took a lot longer. Yeah, it happened, but two years, the first one, one month. Okay. So, so crazy. I'm going to direct you a little bit here because I really want to talk about this because this is an awesome organization and I think you just don't want to brag, but, but you need to talk about this. Let's talk about flow. Okay. Um, because you are doing some amazing, amazing things with that organization. Can you tell us a little bit about your, your company yeah. or your organization flow? For sure. So flow is the company that I started. Uh, it's a holdings company and we have a number of different operating units inside of it. And as I grow, my intention is like a virgin brand is to kind of create something like that. Let's see what happens. The reason I started it was after I sold my wealth management business, I did go into like one of those classic, like, oh, I've got now money and time and I've got a funk. What am I going to do? What do I do with it? And I kept, yeah. And I kept asking myself this question, like, what do you want to do? What do you want to do? And it was almost impossible to answer. I had too many experiences, too many skills, too many contacts, paradox of choice. 
And then I read this book called Bold by Peter Diamantis. And he, asked, and he poses this question. He says, if you want to become a billionaire, you need to solve a billion person problem. And I wasn't looking to be a billionaire, but I, I did say like, well, what problem do you want to solve? And when I asked that question, the answer was there. I've done a lot for low-income kids going to college. But what about the low-income kids not going to college? I was like, you ain't doing nothing for them, man. And they got it rough, really rough. So I went on this process as we would. I did a lot of research. I did my Porter's Five Forces, the Seven Domains, if you understand Mullins. I did a lot of the research that's required. Then I went into lean, a lean process to go and run experiments and sprints to kind of build different models and test different things. Uh, and I tested about seven different models. And I finally came up with a model that was revenue generating uh, because I wanted to do this in a for-profit manner that provided low-income kids a shot at a career. What I came up with was knocked off from the Swiss. The Swiss have apprenticeships and, and other European countries do for sure. But the Swiss are known as the gold standard, especially in banking. And coming from the last field I was in finance, everyone kind of knows Swiss bankers are amazing. But why? They have a pipeline of youth from the age of 16 that opt into apprenticeships and they can either choose to go to college or not college, but they become amazing bankers. And so I looked at it and I said, well, why don't we have that in the US? And especially like whatever apprenticeships we do have, they're all blue collar. But like, are any of us doing blue collar work anymore? Well, of course there's a major part of the economy. Yes. But like for a lot of us, no. In fact, we don't touch any of that. We outsource it. But what kind of apprenticeships do we have for white collar jobs? And so as I looked at this, I realized, oh my gosh, there is a massive gap in the market. There is a huge pool of talent, low-income youth who are highly motivated, highly driven, not all of them. I'm not, I'm not saying all. There are those who are highly motivated, high aptitude, and their life circumstance just didn't take them to college. But now they got dead-end jobs. So with the right training, could we get them careers that would break poverty? So I created the nation's first digital marketing apprenticeship. When I looked at the most in-demand jobs in Colorado, because I focused here first, I looked at the Colorado Pipeline Report, which is a report that comes out from the Office of Economic Development in conjunction with the Department of Labor, that says, here's all the top jobs we have in our economy that are unfilled. And I just went, sort, descending order, show me. Coding, number one. Sales for tech, number two. Digital marketing was somewhere around four or five. I was like, you know what? I've hired digital marketers. You don't need a degree. We don't even know what degree you have. Could care less. Can you do the skill? And that was when I went, the, I had the aha. So I created an agency that would teach digital marketing skills to these youth while they had to perform a service for money. So we started with live chat. Want to see a full circle? I'm really good at chat, right? AOL. And I was like, I bet you I could teach some kids how to chat. <laughs> Turns out I can. So we are, we had a, a started with a live chat agency. What's the unique value prop? It's very simple. They're US based native English speakers and they can solve complex problems on chat. So we do lead gen. I just said, you know what? Like, let's go after the revenue. If we can attach to revenue, we'll be in, we'll be in good shape. So I taught these kids some marketing and some sales and how to converse on chat to make a sale book appointments, whatever it is, right? Like book appointments, convert leads, da, da, da. So that's what they learn. They do that 40 hours a week. On top of the 40 hours a week, which they're paid for, we sell a live chat service. They have a curriculum. It's a three-year curriculum that they can self-pace through, but they have milestones on every quarter that they have to hit in order to complete it within three years. They can do it faster. 
Once they've demonstrated that they've learned the skill intellectually, we then give them hands-on applications so that they can actually use the skill and demonstrate it. It's one thing to go to a class. It's a whole other thing to do it. So we give them roughly 10% time in the class, 90% time practicing the skill. Once they demonstrate they have the skill, instead of outsourcing that project or that job to somebody else, which our company would need, we insource it. So I pay them a lot less money than I would pay somebody to outsource. In exchange, they deliver me something that's very productive and I'm building their skills to the point where they can then advance to the next step. As they demonstrate more skills, they get paid more until they reach the three-year mark or that whatever that, that final milestone is to complete their apprenticeship and they make $40,000. And now they have a career path that can accelerate past the 40. The 40 is just to break poverty, right? 40 breaks, 35 technically breaks poverty. So we wanted to give a little bit more, like have build their skills a little bit past there, but also give them a trajectory that whether it's within flow or out of flow, they can go and have careers in this field. The reason why I went to a holdings company was I needed to create, create career opportunities for them to go into, right? Like I had to have a place for them to go. And so that's why we have now live chat. We have content marketing. We have knowledge-based building. You know, like when you go to a self-service knowledge base, someone writes those articles, someone organized all that. All my talent, right? From, we have management and all the, the leadership, but like all my youth talent are excellent writers. Their core skill is they write really well. They just didn't go to college and they are academically strong, but now we teach them copy. We teach them content, right? You guys know the difference. Academic writing doesn't mean anything in this world like that. It's not in the marketing world, but if you can write copy, well, you got a, you got a whole business just writing copy. If you can write content, you got a whole thing doing that. Social media, you got a whole thing doing that. So we teach them this because their core skill is, is writing. And of course we have a phenomenal like management team um, who I've put together. So now they run those different divisions and build it with a combination of apprentices and contract folks who can come in kind of on a gig basis until we can train up an apprentice to do that gig. And now we don't need those contractors and then have a leadership team. It's a very simple model. Grow our talent in-house. Very Love cool. that. Before we move on to the next part of our show, let's hear from one of our show sponsors. Real estate investing is known for a lot of things, mainly making a very select group of people a whole lot of money. But being an online cutting-edge experience is usually not one of those hallmarks. Well, thanks to Fundrise, that's no longer the case. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. Their revolutionary model is transforming the industry, thanks to their software, which cuts out the costly middlemen and removes old market inefficiencies. Fundrise delivers the kind of investing power you typically only see at the big institutions and can now bring real estate's unique potential for long-term growth and cash flow to individual investors like us. Getting started is simple and usually takes less than five minutes. When you invest with Fundrise, you'll be instantly diversified across dozens of real estate projects, each one carefully vetted and actively managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. Then you can use their intuitive investor dashboard and real-time reporting system to monitor the progress of each property in your portfolio. Now that's the future of real estate investing. So are you ready to get started? Then visit Fundrise.com slash BP business. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash BP business. And you'll get the first three months of fees waived. Again, that's fundrise.com slash BP business. And I want to, I want to touch on one, one common thread throughout so many things in 
that description, that story, you touched on many times, you said the words core skills, right? And mm -hmm. I am, I'm especially wanted to explore that just a touch more because I think that's one of those things that might be really beneficial for our listeners to hear as we're hiring, like you'd mentioned when you saw the need for this, that digital marketing was fourth or fifth down the list, but it occurred to you, we hire digital marketers all the time but we don't know, they don't need college degrees. I can teach them to that because they've got that skill. So my point of this is, is there something, It's it, this is kind of an aha light bulb moment for me. Should we be looking less to like college degrees, less to specific experiences, less to qualifications? And are you advocating when we as business owners are hiring people, we should truly be looking more at core skills rather than those different experiences and other things they bring to the table? At the, at the heart of it, is it really all about identifying those core skills, would you say? Yeah, 100%. And I'll, I'll go like way past just saying hire for skills. I will say if you are hiring for education and experience, you're doing it wrong. You are wrong. And now you're not wrong ethically. You are limiting your potential applicants and you're setting yourself up for a lower probability of success. Therefore, I'm saying it's wrong. There's a higher probability of you having a strong hire. But so all of this game is odds, right? Like business is odds. It's not, there's no assurances on anything. If you're hiring for education and experience, you're basically saying, I'm looking at signals to see like, could they do this job I have? They're signals. They're not evidence. Skills are evidence. If you, have, if you can identify what skills your job needs and you can interview for those skills and score them on how well they demonstrate those skills, then you've increased your odds. The problem most of us have is how do I turn a job description into a skills-based job description as opposed to an education and experience job description? The resources I can point to are the Markle Foundation, M-A-R-K-L-E Foundation. You can send them a job description and they will turn it around. It's a nonprofit. They will turn around and turn it into a skills-based job description. That's the nonprofit's mission is to hire people on skills. Why? Because you open yourself up to a lot broader labor pool. And one thing you don't realize probably is a lot of people won't ever apply to your job because they don't think it's realistic that they would get it. And there's a lot of talent that could actually be great at it, but because they don't qualify on the ed and the experience, they don't ever apply, but their skill set might've actually been spot on. So you weed out people unnecessarily. So the Markle Foundation is a great one. Onet Online, O-N-E-T Online. It's a government website and it's booty. It looks terrible, but they do have a search field. And in that search, if you type in, let's just say marketing specialist or manager or whatever, they lay out all the skills that's required for that job. It is brilliant. The database, the, the, the UI UX, not so awesome, but all that data is in there. So you can actually translate your own job description by simply popping in that job into that search field, identify what skills are already there, both foundational, which what's known as hard skills and soft skills, right? Translate that, put that onto a job description, watch the applicants. Almost every one of my jobs goes viral. Huh? Viral. I'm not saying like I have a lot of applicants viral. Why do they go viral? There are people out there who are YouTubers who pick up the job and they have a whole audience of people that are looking for certain kinds of jobs that they can't get because they're getting weeded out for education and experience. They then show these people on YouTube how to apply for the shop. Not what to say, but here's what, they, what they're looking for here. Here's do this, do this. Like make sure you upload your video here. Hit submit that they walk them through and they go viral. 
in the thousands of that. So I've had to automate a ton of processes on the back end because we would literally have, we literally have thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of applicants. We have to get to like six on the other end. <laughs> what a good problem. That is an awesome problem all the way around. But how many times have you heard someone saying their jobs went viral? Right. Never. No, you just don't hear right. that, but it's all because right. it's approached in a completely different manner. Right. So when I tell you what I'm saying, I'm not saying it as an opinion. I'm telling you as a matter of fact, my jobs go viral and they go viral with really amazing candidates and it increases my odds of getting it right. Awesome. And that's all we can ever hope for in this game. That is cool. fantastic. Okay. So I want to talk now about some of the stuff you were doing that I imagine is all about your soul and not about your ego and part of your calling. You are, have just released um, a couple days ago, a new book and an album. Mm-hmm. So it's not often that we interview guests who we, we talk to guests all the time who are, who are releasing books and who have books, yeah. but we don't often interview guests who have just released an album. So I do want to hear about the book, but I definitely want to hear about the album. Tell us about those two things. <laughs> Is there any relationship there? Cause I know they dropped on the same day. Yeah. Um, where, where did those come from? And, and tell us a little bit more about those. Yeah, for sure. Um, to the best of my knowledge, aside from kitty books, it's the only book that has a soundtrack. And the basic idea was when I was writing the book, it's a book about a rapper who goes on like this uh, self-development journey. And at the end of the journey creates this magnum opus album. And as I'm writing this, I start hearing like the sounds. Mind you, you know my DJ background now, right? Yep. So like this isn't totally unusual, but I'm hearing some sounds. And I'm like, yo, this shit is fire. It's like Indian sounds with like hip hop beats. And there's a couple songs out there, right? There's like, Eric Sermon's React, Jay-Z, when Punjabi MC, like there's a couple songs, but there's not enough of them for, for me, at least to my taste. So I started hearing the sounds and I was like, Ooh, I wonder if that's for an audiobook. So I go Googling, you know, like music for audiobooks, And sure enough, there's websites that have audio music for audiobooks. but the music for that is like, it's like hokey, man. It's like Enya and Yanni type sound and stuff like not stuff I would do. Right. Like it was just like, no, 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 that ain't it. I was like, you know what? What if I just laid this beat? I was like, well, I don't really know how to make beats, but I know how to hire people. There you go. <laughs> and I know what it sounds like here. As long as I can communicate with mm-hmm. my mouth, what it sounds like in here, and what it sounds like in here, I'm pretty sure somebody can figure out like how to translate that in with their art. Right. I was like, all right, well, if I make beats, I'm also, I just wrote a book. What if I write some lyrics? I write anyways. Well, if I wrote lyrics, well, then I make a song. Well, if I made a song, what if I made an album? And then I was like, yo, what? <laughs> I like an album? This is amazing. Like, all my life, you know, I've been like, man, I wish I would have continued on the DJ path, producing, making music. And here I had a reason. Not that I needed one, but it like finally felt right. The calling was make this album. So the, the name of the book and the name of the soundtrack is the same. Bling. B-L-I-N-G. Bling. The book is under my real name, Andy Seth. And the album is under my artist name, A-Love, A-L-U-V, who's also the main character in the book who goes through and makes this album. So super meta, right? And it's chapter for chapter, track for track. The idea being that I know the book will land when you read it, but music will help you retain and recall, right? Because different things are happening in your brainwaves and we don't have to get into the study of that, although I can but we can talk like the, your brain waves, different things are happening in your brain that allow you through repetition to recall music 
and you'll get the lessons like this. If you ask me, Hey, what are the three lessons in your book or the five lessons in your book? You know how I remember them? I remember the track titles. That's cool. I know them conceptually, but like to, to rattle them off super fast, I didn't have to memorize them. I just list off track one, track two, track three. Like I got them in the track, even though they're the names of the chapters. For some reason in a book, hard to recall. You guys tell me how many songs can you recall from the nineties? Oh, a, mil- a million. All of them. Every of last them. one of them. Right. But it's been two decades, y'all. Yeah, but you still can because you attach them to those memories. That's right. You attach them to those or experiences. Three <laughs> a lot. Just a lot. Uh, More okay, than we man. care to admit. It's really that. But simple. tell me a paragraph you can recite from a book. None. Zero. Right. Right. And I learned this when I was the board chairman of a school called KIPP Schools, K-I-P-P. Yep. KIPP Schools is the largest charter school in the nation. I was the board chair of Colorado KIPP, and we helped expand that into multiple sites across the state. One of the things I learned from this brilliant teacher was she taught math through rhyme. And I watched her do it, and I was like, what is going on? And the kids understood the concepts because they could recall. And that stuck to me. Your, Your ability to recall through music is infinitely greater than it is in a book. So by having this device, the lesson spreads faster. That's awesome. It spreads faster. So let me ask you a question. Do you know of any other artists, any other writers who have ever done this? Or is this unique? Is this, is this a first? I went looking legit. I went looking. The closest I've found is logic. Logic is a, is a amazing rapper, amazing rapper. He wrote a nonfiction, or sorry, he wrote a fiction book and he made an album but the album is like, he's a, he's a musician. Like he made an album. It wasn't necessarily like that went with the book. Sure. So, but he's the closest one that dropped, you know, under the same title, it's called supermarket. He dropped a book and an album, but it's not a soundtrack to the book necessarily as much as it is, is it's just, it's another album that he dropped and he dropped a book with that. Yeah. Um, mine is like intentionally, if you hear chapter for chapter, you'll know exactly that story. It's not verbatim, obviously, but like the spirit of the chapter is coming out through each chapter. So if you listen to the seven tracks, you will understand the complete message. Whereas Logics is more like they're good songs. They're, you know, they're, they're good songs that work, but they're like, they're not thematic with the book. Um, but that's as close as I've seen anybody out there do it. Uh, and shoot, if I'm in company with Logic, play it, please. I'm happy. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I've written a few books, so I know the process and I know the amount of time and dedication it takes to write a book. I can't even imagine writing a book in an album. How long did that take you to to write this book and then write the album? Uh-huh. Oh, man. The book took me five days. What? What? You wrote a book in five days. Okay. I just days. said you okay. wrote a book in five days. Okay. Let's see. Let's hear Mind the story blown. about this. How'd you do that? Mind blown. So, I'm taking the truth notes. Is like prior to this book, I had another book in my publisher's hands that was going through rounds of edits. And that one took me about a year. Okay. Okay. And this book's message came to me in a meditation and it felt like a download. It felt like, Hey, here's this message. I came out of the meditation. I was like, yo, what was that? Got read it. And I thought it was for a speech I had to deliver. So I was like, maybe it's for a speech. I sat and wrote this thing for the speech, like the night before the speech. And it was way too long, like way too long. So that was day one from 11 PM till 2:45 AM. We're calling that day one. I go do the speech and I just read it. I didn't have a, like I had no speech. I mean, that's the fourth year I've done this keynote, everything. And this, the audience standing ovation, we had an hour and a half Q and a, but we we're talking about all this like internal tools that were like, we're not talking about my story anymore. We're talking about 
what are the things that I've taught? And the Q&A was out of this world. Now I came back to my wife and Natasha and I was like, babe, like, I never believed this. This is crazy. But like, here's what happened. And kids had spring break a couple weeks later. She's like, just take spring break and go write it. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it was done. Wow. And that's, that is a large part because I can trigger flow. And from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. all four days, I was in flow state. And that's a lot of, when I talk about internal work, like, yeah, let your ego get in the way and see how you write a book. I've done it. It takes a lot longer because you're trying to consider this and consider that and consider this and consider that. Right. And you like, should I build, should I do it like this? And so like you rewrite. Now this was a one shot, one shot. Now there's rounds of edits. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to like downplay all the work that happens after a lot of edits and proofreads and all that stuff. But the the entire message, the book was done in five. You, You poured your calling into it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the difference when you're trying to build multiple businesses. How do you do like to your point, how can you possibly do all that? Well, it took me five days. You can do something in five. Awesome. (laughs) So awesome. So Andy, what are some of the major themes of the book as, as a reader, what are we going to get out of, of the book? Yeah. Well, as I was just talking about how the, I wrote this book in five days, the lessons in the book will teach you how to do something like that. And they're pretty much a few things. One is what we talked about ego. How do you separate the ego from the soul and really tactically understand that to the point that you no longer operate from the ego, but you operate from the soul. The second one is how you manage energy. We talked a little bit about energy and how everything and everyone is all energy. But what we don't really think too much then about is energy management. We talk about time being a precious resource and I don't have time for this and I don't have time for that. Even the questions we talk about, like how did you have time for that? The truth is, I believe, is how do you have the energy for it? Because what we do know is when things are priority, they get done, right? What we have, though, is a limited battery size. We all got different batteries. How much energy we have is different. And more importantly, how do we manage the energy and how do we prevent leaks? There are three things that cause leaks. And I talk a lot about this in the book, but I think it's important to like really drill this home. If you have unintentional leaks of energy, You don't have energy to do the ambitions that you have because energy went out the door. You can't get it back. Remember, it can't be created. It gets transferred. So like if you leaked it, it's gone. So how do you prevent those energy leaks? And there are three ways, three primary ways that energy does leak from you. And I talk about those three and how to solve those three things so that you hoard your energy and are able to go after those ambitions at a higher level. And the third one then is the ability to concentrate. If you think about it, like we're like master distractors, right? Like all day, every day we're distracted. Everyone can admit and agree to this, but we're actually really good at it now. We're like multiple tabs for sure. Cell, cell, like the cell phone, we got this thing slack pinging us. We got emails running. Like we're actually good at managing distraction, but how good are you at managing your concentration? How often do you practice concentration? Concentration is actually really tough, but what, what, what I know is if you're, if you're able to concentrate, you can trigger flow. And when you can trigger flow state, a lot can get done. But if you don't practice concentration in a way that's repeatable every single day, that takes almost no additional effort. Like, well, I can't block off more time to do this. Well, okay. How can you do it within your every day? For example, my one way when I was like trying to build the skill was Every time I wash my hands, which is multiple times a day, right? I just look at the water for 30 seconds. Just look at the water and watch how, how often you'll watch your, your thoughts 
shift from the water. It's wild. All I'm saying is like, look at the water for 30 seconds, bro. You can do it, but it's hard. And he had to develop that concentration skill. So every time I wash my hands, so that maybe gave me what in total five minutes a day. <laughs> I don't know. But like five minutes a day, I could practice concentration and I built from there. What are everyday tasks that you can build concentration so that you can get into flow state when you're trying to build and scale a business or build multiple businesses, you know, how good you have to be at concentration. Like your, your distraction ability is going to kill the business, right? Your, Oh, I have ADD. Stop it. It's not good. That's not going to help you. That's really going to hurt your business. And if you're trying to build something with purpose, believe me, you're trying to pull a two trick pony out, right? When I build a business with a social good, that's a two trick pony. We're a B Corp, right? The B Corps are those certification of all the socially good uh, companies that have been audited independently for how, how impactful their business are. We just got rated top 10% worldwide of all B Corps. Let me tell you how much concentration it takes to pull that two trick pony that we can make money and can solve a social problem. That's hard to do. So concentration is like one of the other skills. And there's a lot of other different things that I teach in there in the book too. But when you start to unlock these skills, these are very practical and they will help you achieve greater ambitions while not feeling that suffering and pain of like, I haven't achieved something or the expectations you have. That's the management of self-realization. That's the ability to go play this game at the highest level and not ever feel like you weren't good enough or like you didn't achieve something like, and you don't have to suffer through it. Like that's all nonsense. If I could, if you, I think if uh, somebody said like, what's something, you know, that, that you could like, what's some belief you have that people don't often have. It's that you have to suffer in none of my story. Have you heard me talk about suffering? At once. Right. Was it, was it difficult? Sure. Difficult sure. doesn't mean suffer. How I experience that difficulty is my choice. That is your choice. And that's what we have control over. And that's to me, self-realization, like getting to that self-realization. But why do we have to suffer? That's nonsense. You might go through pain, but pain doesn't mean you have to suffer. It just hurts. It's hard, but like you can be happy about that. There's plenty of times when you're in the gym and you feel that rush, right? So like, anyways, this is what I'm teaching through here. And I believe are really valuable business lessons, but more importantly, they're great for your life. They will permeate throughout your life. That's awesome. That's a great way to just bring everything together, right? Everything that you've done since you were a kid, since you started hustling at 10 years old through all these different businesses that you've grown, all these social areas that you've tackled. And it's all about not just building businesses. It's about enriching your life, your life mm -hmm. and the lives of others. And that's just such mm -hmm. an amazing way to live and a great mindset to encapsulate as you go through this journey. Thank you. Yeah. Very cool. That. Okay. So with that, Andy, I would love to jump to our four more. Okay. So our four more yeah. is the segment of our episode where we ask our guests for rapid fire style questions. So we're just going to ask you a question. Tell us the first thing that comes to mind and it's going to be a lot of fun. Are you ready for the first one? Soul is ready. The soul is ready. Jay, take the first question. Okay. You already told us about your first job. Well, was it a job? Dumpster diving for stickers. It was a gig. It was a gig. It was a gig. It was a gig. I want to hear about your worst job. What's the worst job you've ever had? <laughs> oh, man. Worst job I ever had was uh, selling knives. I sold knives door to door. And I will tell you, I was good at the selling of knives, but 
um, it, what it did to me was not, was not pleasant. What I allowed to happen to me and my ego was not pleasant. I sold my own mom, a set of knives and like, these are expensive knives. And my mom, my mom was like, can you just show me how they work? And I was like, you got to schedule a demo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Could I have a bigger ego? Um, so yeah, did I sell a lot of knives? Yeah, bet. Uh, did I like who I became? Hell no. Worst job because of what I became, not because of the job. And by the way, that's the kind of ownership that I'm talking about. Like I designed that and I got, I designed a flaw. Yeah, that's a great a great learning thing from that right there. That's such a good takeaway. Okay, still got the knives though. Of course you do. Of course you do. After you demoed them on yourself, because that was that was you know the the time commitment oh. we had to make so, it was so massively important. Okay, oh, brutal. I'd like to know, Andy. Question number two: Is there an opportunity somewhere along the way that someone's offered you that you've just said no to, and in retrospect, was it the right decision? Yeah, for sure. Plenty of things I say no to. I'll tell you what to me is. Uh, the greatest testament of feeling in here versus like the soul versus the ego in this regard, that is letting go of business. That is saying no. Uh, it, it happens all the time. It just happened last year. My largest client at Flow was not acting out of integrity. And they were doing things that I could see on the outside, but I understood what was going on. And I thought, man, they're our biggest client, but like that's dirty money. Like, it might not be illegal dirty, but it's ethically like, I don't like what they're doing. Like that's not right for other people. And while you can legally get away with it, man, I don't need any of that. Like this, my, my company will, will go on, we'll take quality. Thank you. And so that's like a, a, I had to write a letter and imagine like you got to write a letter and I had to make it sound like I wanted to make it sound encouraging to them so that they could do the right thing. And also know like, we're just not the ones going to do it with you. And that my, when I sent the letter, you know, the response was, okay, thank you very much. It was, you know, obviously what, what are they going to say? But my team rejoiced. They were like, thank you. Like when you talk about this stuff, like, like we know you're down for it, right? Like that's our largest revenue client and Hey man, quality over quantity, right? Well, do you really do that for me? I say no, if it's not the right quality of money. Love it. I love that. Okay. Question number three. There's a lot of bad advice that's floating around out there. What's some of the worst advice you've heard either in your industry or your life? And how would you flip that around to turn it into good advice? Every single quote and meme that has anything to do with world domination makes me want to gag. <laughs> when I see world domination, I'm like, play a please world domination. You can't dominate yourself. And we're talking about the world. Like, how about we get after self-domination? Because if you could dominate yourself, guess what? We're all connected too. You do actually help the world. But you're trying to dominate the world as if it's as if it's something to be conquered. And that conquering, like this is speaking from an Indian brother, like we don't get down with the conquering so well. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> hey, <laughs> let's not get into reparations. My point is like, hey, conquering is not something to aspire to from like as if the world is yours to be taken. Yourself should be taken. Go figure out you dominate you. If I could put a meme up that said self-domination over world domination, that's the right one. Every everything that has to do with world domination is wrong, wrong morally. It is wrong for you. It will bring you zero joy. It will only bring temporary pleasure. You will feel suffering because you have not dominated such thing. Meg, out of here with that stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> nonsense. That is nonsense. That is major nonsense. I can't yeah, agree with you. If you title this episode World Domination, <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't even do it. Just for fun, just to mess with you. Okay, here's our fourth question, Andy. This is one of my favorites. What is something in your personal or your professional life that you've splurged on at some point that was totally and entirely worth it? <laughs> um, I just redid my closet. <laughs> nice. So I've, I've kind of had this trademark look um, with these polos and stuff. And I went to India and India just has beautiful fabrics and textiles, rich and vibrant in color. And so I went into the shop and I started getting, I wanted to get three shirts made. And I had this idea. It's a Kurta, which I'm wearing now. It's a Kurta shirt, kind of this kind of a, a Chinese collar as they're known. Um, they're a little bit longer. They fit, you know, so I was like, oh, I'll go get three shirts made. Just something, you know, when I have like the festivals and stuff like that, that are Indian, like I'll look the part. But I kind of had this idea. I was like, yeah, but I can make it like kind of Western too. You know, like, as you can see, if you're not watching the video, I got this this fabric matches this part and on the inside, but I don't have it on this side, right? It's on one. Anyways, I ended up getting 11 made. <laughs> wow. Good for I got, you. Instead of three, I got 11 made. I came home, wiped all the, literally all the stuff came out of my closet, put those 11 in. It's a splurge because did I need 11? No. Financially, I think each shirt cost me like $17 to custom make wow. and pick the fabric down to the stitching, the buttons, everything. So like, dollars wise was it a splurge no but my mentality isn't usually to go and do 11 of something right my mentality is usually i'm real it's like just go get one so like this was quite the splurge for me that is awesome <laughs> and it's like all about this brand and all of it i think it's way cool Awesome. Okay. So now we're going to jump into the more part of the four more. And that's where you tell us a little bit more about where our listeners can find out about you. They can get your book, Mm. they can get your album. And if they want to find out more about your businesses or what you're doing, where they can connect with you. Awesome. Awesome. Um, Well, the book is available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all that stuff. Just search for Bling, B-L-I-N-G, or Andy Seth, and you can find those there. There's also links through my website, andyseth.com. The album is under my artist name. So if you search for A Love, A-L-U-V, uh, we're on, I'm on Spotify, Apple Music, um, Amazon Music, everywhere. Um, and so the, the album is available there for streaming and for purchase. Also, the music videos are all on YouTube. So every song has uh, a music video with it because um, I wanted to make music videos. And why wouldn't I have a music video? So awesome. <laughs> so, so I got music videos. Um, the music videos are up on YouTube. Um, the central hub for everything really is andyseth.com. That's probably an easy place to go and you can find your way into all those different things. Um, for Flow, which is the, the company I talked about, um, as I mentioned, we do like the live chat, we're doing content marketing, we're building out knowledge bases. Um, you can go to feelmeflow.com, feelmeflow.com, which if you are a hip hop fan, you know, that's a song by Naughty by Nature. And, uh, a 90s song. I was about show. to say. Uh, for <laughs> show. And so Feel Me Flow is the name of our domain. And there you can inquire about all the things that we do there as well. Awesome. Andy, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today and, and for inspiring us and just giving us so many great tips and things to think about. Thank you. Thank you. That warms my heart for real. I appreciate both of you guys. You guys have been really awesome to, to get to talk with too. I don't, I honestly, like when we talk about intentions, I don't like go out and pitch and do all that stuff for podcasts and say like, Hey, anybody that wants it, like 
I feel like the show's got to have the right vibe too. And, and uh, I've listened to you guys and I appreciate the vibe that you guys have had with me. So I thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you so, so much, much, Andy. That's so kind. We appreciate that. Congratulations well on your book and album as well. It's an awesome thank book you, and I'm really you. excited for you. We'll talk to you soon, okay? <laughs> All right. Take Thanks, care, guys. Andy. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. That was a really fun episode. He's a really cool guy. Right? He is so much fun. Not only has he started so many businesses, he's had social awareness throughout it. And I just love how he kept coming back to over and over the whole concept of just not letting your ego get in the way of doing the right thing, whether it's in your business, whether it's in your personal life, just setting all that aside and silencing your ego to make sure that you always do the right thing. It was really cool. I know. And the funny thing is, I think I might have said it during the episode, but he literally would have talked that entire episode about his DJ gig back in the 90s because it's what he's passionate about. And I love the fact, I love talking to people who are passionate and that's his passion. I mean, he he that, that didn't end up being his business. He didn't get rich doing it, but literally he would have talked about the whole episode if we let him because he was just so, so passionate. I love that. Yes, and, and aren't you so happy for him that it all came full circle? Now with this album that accompanies his book, it's just the fact that he still, he kept that passion. He kept that fire going and now all these years later it's all come full circle and he's doing what he loves so it's so cool yep. it was a great show yep book just came out a couple days ago i'm gonna go order it right now and get to reading awesome baby let's wrap this up all righty she's carol i'm jay now go make some decisions with your soul today have a really good day everybody thanks everybody have a good day bye bye <laughs>